0: Okay, I have said this before, I am so tired of being intimidated, and I am one of those people that am easily intimidated. You know, I have these people, sometimes they call me fearless leader, I don't know what they're seeing. (laughs) I get intimidated by TSA agents at airports. I disclose things I don't need to. I take off my socks, they're like, your shoes are sufficient. Passport agents, I tell them everything I did on the entire trip and everything that's in my suitcase. And they're like, that's really nice, but I don't need to know that much. (laughs) You know, with dogs, I get intimidated by dogs. I go up to dogs, here, smell my hand. I am a nice person. I haven't been around cats, I promise. I just, you know, I get intimidated by my own computer. It's like I'm typing my message, please be nice to me. I won't push any strange buttons as long as you're nice to me. You know, my son is always telling me, Mom, you need to just push as many buttons as possible. And just, you know, that's how I figure things out. I'm like, no, 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 he gets mad at me when I do that. I do everything I can to get along with my Mac computer. But, you know, I kind of get the thing that maybe it looks at me like Eve. You know, it is the apple with the one bite out of it. When I was in New York City just last week, I have to tell you that I felt naked the entire time. I was wearing a borrowed coat, and it was like a sleeping bag. I had to keep zipping it up from the bottom up, and it, you know, started at my ankles. And it was like everybody's down the street, and I'm still trying to get the two, you know, zippers to, like, connect. Like, I felt like an Indian trying to start a fire with two pieces of wood, you know, like, come on, come on. There's just something about wearing borrowed clothes. Like they know you don't belong because you had to borrow it because you don't even have the right clothes for the place you're at. I brought the wrong shoes. You know, the first place I stepped into, it was like a slush puddle and it just came up and over and into the shoe. And I wore the wrong socks. I wore nylon socks, not wool socks. I had the wrong type of scarf. My scarf was hand knitted and had holes in it. I could feel the 23 degrees and the wind chill factor. And then I was wearing the wrong hat. It was cute. That was the problem. (laughs) Not warm, not functional. And everyone else seemed to know where they were going. Not only did they seem to know where they were going, but they knew how to get there. And they knew how to use the transportation system. They knew how to hail a taxi. They just passed me by. I I left my hand up like... And then I'm like... And they're just like... (laughs) You know, they knew how to buy the tickets for getting on the underground. They knew when to get off the bus and where to get on the bus. They knew it, and I didn't. And I felt so vulnerable. I was constantly cold. I was constantly disoriented. I felt grimy the entire time because there was trash because they were on a strike. And so there's just trash all over the streets and other things. I felt so out of place. You know, so you know, we use this word, out of my element. I don't even know if I have an element. I'm thinking, out of my comfort zone. What is my comfort zone? You know what I decided is my comfort zone? My bed. That is a scary thing. <laughs> That's the only place I feel comfortable. Like, Yes, my pillow is my element. My bed is my comfort zone. That means the rest of life I'm uncomfortable with. Now, when we as women get intimidated... We often overcompensate. No. Yes. We make it too much about ourselves. We get scared. And if, if we're scared, we get sometimes aggressive. You ever do that? You scared? No, I'm not scared. You know, we're going to be a little more militant. We will push a little harder. We, we get and we act defensive. We just get on the defensive right away. What are you looking at? You know, good looking at me. And you know, we just, right away, we're like, you're stupid. You know, just don't look at me. We attack rather than just simply present. You know, you always, my dad would say he always knew a person was losing the argument when they started name calling. He said that means they've lost their power. When they start name calling and accusing and going personal, it's because they've lost any credibility And any ability to reason. When they put down. When we start putting down. Or we have to insult. Rather than exalt the name of Jesus Christ. We're scared. We're intimidated. We often pretend we're something that we're not. Like we pretend we're a New Yorker. The fact that I have a tan shows I'm not. We try to fit in. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I belong here. You know, was it your poise? You know? Hoity and Toity were sitting on a cob, eating dirty worms. Said, Hoity to Toity, this worm is dirty. Said, Toity to Hoity, a little dirt never hurt you. So we, I kept practicing, so I sound like them. My dad taught me that, besides but we try to fit in. I'll never forget, I probably told you this before, but being with my kids when we lived in England and walking into Victoria Station, and there was a little um, kiosk that was selling soup. And I went up there and I said, I'd like some tomato soup. And the guy looks at me and goes, You're an American, I'm an American, it's tomato, okay? <laughs> and my kids are like, Oh, mom, you're so embarrassed. You know, teenagers are always embarrassed of their parents. Now my grandson, he's like, oh, grandma. You know, it's darn. He turns 13 in a month. It's already happening. Or we try to be intellectual. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he's, he's like, super intellectual. He's just got his doctorate. And, you know, I was telling him, like, oh, yes, you know. And he goes, I was telling him about, you know, some people and what they believe. And he says, oh, that sounds very Arnoldian. I said, doesn't it though? And I'm going to look that up as soon as you leave this house and find out what that means. (laughs) Rather than getting intimidated, it's time that we are our ordinary selves and let the gospel of Jesus Christ do its work. Let it reign in us and let it do all it's intended to do. Paul was not intimidated. Don't you get that? As you go through it, it's like, oh, I love his boldness. He's not intimidated by different cultures. He's not the least bit deterred by a non-Jewish culture. If he's with Greeks, he can relate to them. If he's with Romans, he can relate to them. If he's called to go to Macedonia or Europe, he's all right. If he's called to go to Asia, he's all right. He is not intimidated by a different culture. He's not intimidated by different places or different ways of doing things, or different traditions, different customs. He can go into a synagogue, a marketplace, or the seat of intellectualism, the Areopagus, and not be intimidated. This Jewish man who lived a sheltered Jewish life is totally unintimidated. He's unintimidated among people, whether they are oppositional Jews, receptive Jews, oppositional Greeks, receptive Greeks, women, prominent women, leading women, antagonistic women, which scare me, magistrates, intellectuals, philosophers, or idolaters. He is not intimidated. He is unintimidated by opposition, scrutiny, philosophy, intellectualism, or idols. And he is unintimidated for five reasons, five reasons that we need to grasp if we are going to be unintimidated when it comes to the gospel. Reason number one, Paul knew the power of the gospel. He was unintimidated because he knew that the gospel itself is powerful. Secondly, he knew the call on his life, he knew what God had called him to do and he operated in that call. Thirdly, he knew the scriptures. He knew the scriptures. The more you know your Bible, the less intimidated you are by the devil, the world, or anything else. Four, he knew the superiority of God. To everything and anything. Five, he knew the gaping need of all men for salvation. You know, we sometimes forget that all men need Jesus Christ, that nobody is happy or satisfied without Jesus, because we have been lied to by the media and by the devil to say, oh, Christianity is really a Western religion. It just started in the East, but it's really a Western religion. And those people who are in darkness are very happy with their darkness. Those people who are dying every day without Jesus Christ are very happy to die and have no purpose to their life and no meaning. No, every man needs the gospel. Paul knew the power of the gospel. As he traveled deeper into Europe, Macedonia, remember in Philippi? He was unintimidated by magistrates. They had, he even forced them to make a public apology to them. He says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak the gospel of God in much conflict. Unintimidated. It doesn't matter what happened to him in Philippi. The gospel still has power. He saw the gospel's power to open prison doors, loose those chains And bring the jailer and his whole household to salvation. That's the power of the gospel. And because of the power of the gospel itself, he was bold. When he went to Thessalonica, he went right into the synagogue, just as he had done in every other place. He went right into the synagogue and he began to reason with Jews and Greeks And the women in the synagogue, and he presented what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. He told them first what the scripture said about the Messiah going through the Old Testament, and then we're told that he presented to them Jesus and said, Jesus, Jesus, who you've heard about, because the things that went on in Israel were known were known. Jesus was not a quiet secret in Israel. Those things were known. Multitudes, multitudes had gathered to hear Jesus. Jesus was crucified during Passover week, uh, week, which means that all the Jews that were scattered worldwide, most of them were in Jerusalem at that time. They knew what had gone down. Remember how Ananias and Caiaphas were concerned because when they saw the triumphant inf- entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, they said, the whole world is going after him. So what Paul did is he showed the scriptures because many had come to believe in Jesus, but they were stumbled when he died on a cross. He died a criminal's death. So to say, your Messiah died a criminal's death, that was the stumbling block for the Jews. But Paul took them to the Old Testament, showed them the scriptures that the Messiah must die, what, a criminal death? That he would be cursed on a tree, that he would become a curse for us, that they would gamble over his clothes, that he would cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they would turn to the Psalms and understand in Psalm 22 exactly what was taking place. So, Paul then presented to them Jesus. And though Paul was only three weeks in Thessalonica, he knew that the gospel would do its work. Because it was not up to Paul to save these people, it was up to the gospel. Paul didn't need to stay with them for four years or five years, it only needed three weeks. He gave them the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much insurance, how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Three weeks. That's all it took for these Thessalonians to turn from idols to the living God. Paul knew the power of the gospel to transform lives. I was reading today in Mark, and Jesus was talking in Mark chapter 4, about how the gospel goes in like a little seed. It's just this little tiny mustard seed. And it goes in and he says, the farmer goes to sleep and he wakes up. He's pretty much unconscious of what's going on. But the seed begins to do its work and first a blade, then a stalk, then the grain, the head of wheat. And then it ripens and it's ready for the harvest. This is what the gospel does in us. It goes in like a mustard seed. But immediately it begins to do that internal work and establish us in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures for our sins, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel, and this simple gospel of truth has the power to transform, has the power to establish. The gospel itself is compelling I remember being in college and this girl was sitting next to me and she says okay who are you and I'm like what and she's like no there's something different about you I've been watching you what is it and I said well I believe in Jesus Christ and she goes what do you believe in Jesus Christ so I begin to tell her the testimony of Jesus and you know what I realized E.F. Hutton was speaking. The whole room went silent, and all of a sudden, I realized everyone's looking at me like, like this. And that girl said, "I've never heard anything like this before." Later, this girl found me after class. Her name was Tammy Church, which I felt was really significant. <laughs> and she said, "I want what you have. I heard what you said today, and that's what I want." And I said, well, obviously you belong in church because you're name, this is so exciting. <laughs> you know, it was the gospel itself. I'm just explaining to a girl, like, why i different. Yeah, why I kind of stand out. I, I didn't know I stood out. I was trying not to stand out. <laughs> Maybe because I wasn't an intellectual and I was at UCI. But I was explaining Jesus. And the whole room went quiet. Years later, I was coordinating a wedding here at Calvary. This this man walked in and he says, I've been looking for you. And I'm like, okay. And he said, Do you remember me from UCI Spanish class? I still remember when you gave the gospel to the whole class. In English, of course. Mi español es muy pobre. He said, I remember that and I have been looking for you ever since I've even come to this place looking for you. It's the gospel that's compelling. It's the gospel that's transforming. It's the gospel that can establish. Paul did not need to spend any more time than three weeks because the gospel was able to establish them. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, Paul said this, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God. This is the power of the gospel. Paul was unintimidated because he knew the call on his life. Paul was anointed and empowered to take the gospel into the world. This is what Jesus showed him on the road to Damascus, that he would bear his name before Jews and Gentiles. Paul was gifted and anointed and empowered to reason. He was given these reasoning skills. He could explain and demonstrate from scripture about the suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was able again to point that Jesus is the one. This Messiah that you read about in Isaiah 53. Paul heard the words of Jesus on that road. That he would suffer many things for the namesake of Jesus. Paul was also called to suffer He knew that was part of his call, and he embraced it. And because he knew it was part of the call, he was unintimidated by it. This is what I'm called to. I have a friend who has a disease that gives her chronic pain. Sometimes I look at her, and I just don't know how she does it. And she told me one time, Cheryl, I'm all right with this because I know it's part of my calling. And she said, I'm all right with pain. Other things get me down, but pain is not one of them. Isn't that amazing? You're unintimidated when you know the call. So Paul was empowered and emboldened by suffering. The suffering that accompanied the proclamation of the gospel. He was not intimidated when he was sent out by night from Thessalonica to Berea. That didn't intimidate him. He wasn't intimidated by persecution because he knew to this end he was called. It is easy to be intimidated when we are operating outside the call of God for our life. Why? Because we don't have the power. We don't have the anointing. When I am doing something and I don't feel the grace of God to do it, I get out of it. I stop doing it because I know I'm not called. As my father used to say, where God guides, God provides. Not necessarily financially, but the grace, the anointing, the empowering. When God's in it, that sense of the call, when we are operating outside the call of God, we feel abandoned and alone. And we're trying to get other people to do it for us, or to join us. I think of Martha in Luke chapter 10. This is a woman who is operating outside the call of God on her life. She's doing a good thing. She's cooking. She's cleaning. She's doing all she can for Jesus. But you know what? It wasn't the call, was it? The call was to sit at the feet of Jesus where her sister was. That was the call. You know what I've noticed? If I'm called to do dishes, they'll always be waiting for me. (laughs) The poor you have with you always. I always have laundry. I always have dishes. I should correct that. There are times where I get a five-minute break from laundry, and then it comes. It says, you only thought you were done. I was hiding in this basket right over here, behind the door in your son's room. Here I am. But, you know, there are... There will always be those times to clean, but there's not always that moment to sit at the feet of Jesus, and that's where the call was. That's where Mary was empowered, and as Mary was at the feet of Jesus, what happened? Jesus defended her. Jesus commended her, and when we're in the call, we are both defended and commended by the Lord Jesus. When we're in the call, he's our defense. He's our protector. He's our deliverer, so we don't need to be intimidated, but Martha, outside the call, what is she? She's angry at Jesus. Lord, don't you care? She feels alone and isolated. My sister has left me. I'm all alone. I'm abandoned. And she's bossy, nagging. Tell her to get in here and help me. Directing Jesus. Isn't that what we do when we're outside the call? Lord, you anoint me, even if I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm doing it for you. But she was outside the call. Jesus said, Martha, Martha. First one didn't count. You are cumbered about by a lot of things, but only one thing is essential. And that's to sit at the feet, <laughs> to sit here and listen to my word. Mary has chosen the better part, and what she's doing won't be taken away from her. He knew the call. When we're outside of the call of God, it becomes performance rather than being empowered. When I find myself in a performance mode, I'm not in the call. It's time to step out and get alone with Jesus. Paul was not intimidated because he knew the scriptures. He knew his Bible. In 2 Timothy 3.15, He commended Timothy, saying, Timothy, now remember, Timothy had a problem with fear, remember? He spoke to him in 2 Timothy 1, 7, says, Timothy, God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And then he reminds him again in chapter 3, verse 15, he said, from a youth you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's the scripture and knowing the Bible that will embolden us and prepare us so we don't need to be intimidated. Now in Berea, as before, Paul goes into the synagogue and he begins to preach. And we're told that the Bereans carefully weighed everything Paul set out. Verse eleven: that they received the word with readiness, carefully listened again, Acts seventeen eleven, and they searched the scriptures daily to check on the veracity and validity of all that Paul preached. Paul knew that all he taught could be verified by scripture and could stand up to any scrutiny. He knew it. He was emboldened to share. Because he knew it was biblically correct, because he knew the scriptures. Years ago, I was up in a church in Northern California and I did a message. I had never done it before. And uh, I don't think I've done it since, but it's one of my favorite messages. I'm just waiting for the opportunity. And they gave me this scripture a wise woman builds her house from Proverbs. And I had been reading in Genesis. And I had been looking at Leah and Rachel, these two competing sisters. And what I saw was that Rachel had all the natural advantages, but all the spiritual disadvantages. And Leah had all the spiritual advantages and all the physical disadvantages. But at the end of Genesis, when they're going to bury Jacob, he says, bury me next to Leah, where Rebecca and Isaac and Abraham and Sarah are buried. She ended up being the matriarch of the faith, not the beautiful Rachel. I'm sorry if your name's Rachel. That really hurts women whose names are Rachel. I'm telling you, not a popular study with them. But Rachel was buried in Bethlehem, and later her tomb was desecrated but Leah. And so I was really excited, and, and this really takes on grand proportions when you look at the names that they name their children. I, I mean, I'd love to do that Bible study right now. Can you tell? It's like, oh, 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 I want to tell you so more. But anyway, after I gave this study, the pastor's wife came up to me. And she said, hmm, your tape outsold. You can tell how long ago it was. Your cassette tape on your message outsold everybody else's. I just, hmm, not sure about what you said. I'm going to have to look that up in the Bible. I'm like, well, I hope you do, Miss <laughs> Pastor's wife, because I knew it could stand the scrutiny. I knew it because I knew the validity of what I said because it was all in the Word. In fact, I opened my Bible and said, look, 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 look. Connect the dots. It's all here. It's all here. Here, so Paul could stand up to examination and the searching out of the scriptures because he was confident that he knew the scriptures, the validity of the word of God. He knew the word, he knew what it meant. You see, a reading over the word of God is not going to give you the meaning, you have to search the scriptures, you have to go deep, you have to seek understanding. Because without understanding, the enemy will take it away. Again, Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13. If you don't understand what you read, the enemy will rob you of everything you're reading. He'll just take it right away. But if you seek to understand it, what does this mean? What is this saying? And that's why I love the Amplified Bible the New Living Bible, David Guzik's uh, commentary on Blue Letter Bible, the Holman's Handbook to the Bible, Haley's Bible Commentary. I heard it's really supposed to be Hallie's. Haley, Hallie, whoever. I love these Bible commentaries because, you know, and I believe in taking smaller portions of scripture so you know what you know I mean, if I read the book of 1 Corinthians and you go, what did you read? Corinthians. What'd you get? Scriptures. You know, it's just... And sometimes I feel the Holy Spirit going, stop, you've got enough, you're on overload. If my computer gets too many files in it, you know what it does? It arbitrarily begins to delete And when my brain gets overloaded, it arbitrarily begins to delete and it deletes the important stuff and sometimes leaves me with nothing but theme songs from 70s, you know, comedies on television. I'm like, no, I don't want to know all the words to that, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever is, I don't want to know that, I want to know my Bible. So we need to know understanding, know what it means, know what it says, know where to go, what it says. Brian and I used to play this game. He would give me a scripture and say, where is it? I would say the Bible. (laughs) I would give him a scripture. He could get to the book and the chapter. In fact, he's kind of my living commentary. I'm like, Brian, where does it say? And he'll say, Oh, that would be like Matthew chapter six, somewhere in the thirties. And it is so right. I love it when every once in a while I go, "Uh uh-uh, it was 17. (laughs) Same chapter, but you know, I gotta let him know he still needs me just a little bit. I mean, it's just to know the word of God, know what it meant, know what it said, know where to find it. Paul knew where to find it, where to take them in the scroll, where to go, Where it is, is it in the Pentateuch? Is it in the books of prophecy? Is it in the books of poetry? Where it was, we, if we want to be unintimidated, we need to know the scriptures. Because you know, there are going to be people that are going to try to disqualify you. So we need to know the scriptures and the grace of God and where that is in the scriptures. We need to know what it means to be in Christ because the world is constantly shouting and lying at us, and Satan's always going to try to disqualify us and intimidate us. He is the great intimidator, and the only way to stand against his intimidation is to know the scriptures, because the scriptures tell you who you are in Christ, and where you stand in Christ, you need to know the scripture Paul was not intimidated when he went to Athens because he knew the superiority. That was a word of tongues for you that have the gift of interpretation. You know. For the rest of you, the word was superiority of God to every so-called form of wisdom, philosophy, religion, and idol. He knew the superiority of his God. You know, sometimes we get intimidated by idolatry. You're a Buddhist? Okay. You're a Hindu? Okay. You're a Muslim? Okay. I have a friend of mine. She is Somalian. And she was born in Somalia, raised as a Muslim, came to the United States, received Jesus Christ. And one day she heard these, she's a nurse, she heard these other nurses talking about Jesus. And she said, You're all Christians? And they said, Yes, we are. And she said, why didn't you ever tell me about Jesus? And they said, because you're a Muslim. She said, no, I was a Muslim dying in my sins and darkness. And you would have let me die? Didn't you care about me enough to tell me about Jesus Christ? Don't you love me enough to tell me? I know a Muslim man who got saved because a neighbor said to him, have you ever thought of trying Jesus? He said to him, I'm a Muslim. He goes, okay, okay. He left. That night, that man realized that Allah was not getting him anywhere. And so he called on the name of Jesus and was born again in that instant. When we know that our God is the only God, we will not be intimidated by idols. We are not to be intimidated by intellectuals. I mean, think about it. Some of these intellectuals are just monkeying around. They think they came from apes. We know better than that. You know, and even science is proving our point. When they're now saying it couldn't have happened on the earth, so it must have happened on another planet, and they took that seed and brought it to earth. Okay, that's smarter than just believing God created me. And though it looks like a complex design, that's deceiving because it's really not. Because you know we're all in our basements creating humans and trees and roses ourselves. Super easy, huh? And God did it without anything. And we're doing it with all of his substances. With all of his ingredients. And we still can't do it, can we? Best we can do is a car and it breaks down. An airplane and a high-flying pigeon can put that thing down. God is superior. We don't need to be intimidated. God's wisdom is far superior to the wisdom of men. So Paul was unintimidated to proclaim God in the synagogues, the marketplace, and the intellectual forums of his day. There's a book. The bookstore's probably going to kill me, because I don't know if they have it. I love this book. It's called The Committed Life. It's a story of Dwight L. Moody, written by his son. When I finished this book, I sobbed my eyes out. I read it, like, um, I think 10 years ago, but it's a reread, too, a reread. But in it, Moody didn't get an education above uh, a seventh grade, and he didn't even make it all the way through seventh grade. His father died, and he had to go and work on his parents' farm And he never really got a hold of the English language because he was raised on a farm and he he just didn't get it, a farm in Illinois. So he'd say things like, taint no use, get right up. That was for an altar call. He come to him. They said that he murdered the English language. And this... American uneducated farmer was called to bring the gospel to England. And in London, droves of people were coming to Jesus Christ through his life. So he was asked to come to Cambridge. When he went to Cambridge, the students there who were so intellectual were insulted that an uneducated American who butchered the English language was going to tell them anything because they were smarter. Than the gospel or God, they had moved beyond that. So, the first meeting that he had, they heckled so loudly. They every when he got up to speak, they were going hee haw, hee haw. He he could barely speak. That was a that was a, a Wednesday night. So what he I'm sorry Thursday night. So what he did is they said we probably ought to give up on Cambridge, and he said uh uh-uh. uh. He said, I want you to gather every believing mother in Cambridge to me. Any woman who is a Christian, go to all the churches and gather all the believing mothers in Cambridge. So he met with 300 mothers Friday morning, met with 300 mothers and said, I want you to begin to pray for the young men at Cambridge College. And those women began to pray and they spent the day in prayer. He got up Friday night. And he shared the gospel. And over 182 intellectuals responded to the gospel. They said that night he spent the whole night because those who hadn't respond came to seek him out at his hotel room to know Jesus. They didn't have a meeting on Saturday night. They weren't quite sure what was going to happen. They met again Sunday night. And the place was packed out with 2,800 college students. And the majority gave their life to Jesus Christ. It's not over. Then he went to Oxford. In Oxford, the same thing happened. Hee-haw, hee-haw. Anything that he'd say like, "taint no use. "taint no use. "taint no use. And they begin to chant whatever he said wrong. So he just all of a sudden stops and says, I suppose that that's the wine talking and not you. Well, then they got really upset. You calling us drunkards? And he said, no, I'm just trying to give you an excuse for your bad behavior. (laughs) And he said, I thought the English believed in fair play. And this is definitely not fair play. And he challenged them to come back the next night without any liquor. And then he told those that he was, you know, that he was with, that had organized this. He said, when I give the cue, I want you to vacate the first three, three rows because God's going to give us a harvest of souls tonight. So he gave the altar call that night, talked on the marriage supper of the Lamb, gave the altar call, and they had to vacate eight rows. And those young men came forward, and he said, and I want you on your knees repenting and calling out to God. Eight rows of young intellectuals from Oxford were on their knees crying. You see, you don't have to be an intellectual to reach intellectuals. You can be an uneducated American raised on a farm, and you can say, taint no use and get right up here. Because you have the gospel of the living God. Because our God is wiser than the greatest wisdom of men. Our God made it. They're just trying to discover what he already knows. As Galileo says, I just am thinking just a few of the thoughts of God. When he looked at the heavens and the stars and came up with the laws of physics amazing. Our God is superior. Paul knew that God was greater than temples because they were made with men's hands. Verse 24 of chapter 17, that God, our God, is too big to live in a temple. He fills the heavens and the earth. He knew that our God, verse 25, our God, the God we serve, is totally self-sufficient. He is the great I am that I am. He is complex. He is self-sufficient in need of nothing, but everyone needs him because he gives life and breath and being to all things. That's our God. He is superior. Nobody can live or breathe or have being without God. No one. All of life exists because God is merciful and gracious. Paul said in verse 29 that there are no works great enough that any man can do to honor the greatness of God. Because he has no needs and he cannot be worshipped with gold or silver or stone or something shaped by men's hands or designed by men because God is the designer of all men. We're told in verse 26, Paul said that God has made every man and every nation from one blood, that every man and woman stands equal before God. He makes no distinction by intellect, birth, heritage, nationality, education, accomplishment, or social status. That it's God who determines when every man lives A nation lives and every woman lives. He determines the times. We live in this century, the 21st century, for a purpose. Not in Victorian days. We live now. Not in Downton Abbey days. We live now. He determines our life spent. He determines the events of our life. He sets the boundaries for every man and nation how much they can do, how much damage they can do. Do you know every earthly enemy you have, including the IRS, is got boundaries that are set by God? God says to the ocean and to the waves, you can come this far and no further. God sets boundaries on every man. He set the boundaries on Hitler and said, all right, it's up, time up. He also sets the boundaries on how much man can do how much man can do for God, what he will be. You cannot go or come without God. No man is self-determined. We really have little to say about the affairs of our own lives. There is no God or concept of God that compares with the true God. Finally, Paul was unintimidated because he knew the need of all men for God. Every man is created with the purpose of finding God. Every man. As Greg Laurie wrote a a track, um, Living Water, and talked about that God-shaped hole in every man that longs for God. Years ago, there was an article in Reader's Digest that scientists had found that every man was created with with a need to worship something. It's the science that said that. Every man has this need to worship something so that they should seek the Lord in the hopes that they might grope for him and find him. God allowed every human being this deficiency that knows they need a God. When you go to an AA meeting, what do they say? You've got to cry out to higher power. These people at AA have tried everything else and nothing has worked. Every other program has failed, but now they say, try God. They say higher power, but there is no higher power than our God. But they know it is outside. We were created to worship God. Man is empty, purposeless, and aimless without God. Idols cannot fill or help men. Philosophy has left men empty. The Epicureans that Paul spoke before, they were looking for happiness. They believed that happiness and pleasure were the end of life. That is also reflected in our declaration of independence. That all men should, you know, be able to seek happiness. They believed that was the end of life. But you know what? It's an endless, it's an endless. Search, isn't it? Because happiness is so elusive. You know, if you get money back in April, you're happy. If they're taking from you, you're unhappy. I mean, you could be robbed so easily of happiness, can't you? You're having a great day until you hit the car in front of you. Or you see the blue lights flashing behind you. Then a good day turns to a bad day. And then when the ticket comes in the mail, it's even a worse day. Happiness is so elusive. As Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, drink of this water and you'll thirst again. Nothing is going to leave you happy. And Paul knew that. He was unintimidated to talk to the Epicureans because he knew that Jesus was the only lasting source of joy. He was unintimidated to talk to the Stoics who thought that reason or education was the answer. The more education that you give, the more you will improve society. We have more education today than ever in the history of the world. More people read and write but we have more suicides than we have ever had in the history of the world. Our drug problems are worse than ever. Our violence problems are worse than ever. Education is not the answer. Just people know how to make bombs and guns. In Paul's day, the Stoics were the lawmakers. The more education they got, the more laws and more oppression they brought on the society. The Athenians themselves were searchers. were told that they were always discussing and looking for a new thought or trend or way that would be the answer for everything. Right now, scientists have this um, quest. And the quest is to find the answer for everything. Because they realize evolution does not answer all the questions because the question is, where did it start? How did it start? Atoms don't answer the question for everything. You know, we know that everything is made out of atoms, but now that they found there's something smaller than an atom, yes, neutrons, protons, electrons, but now they're saying, but what makes up the neutrons, protons, and electrons? Because it's got to go further. So now they're coming up with this string theory that nobody really understands. And they're trying to say that everything's made up of all these strings. And nobody quite understands the string theory, but they're trying to find the answer for everything. I already know it. God. God is the answer for everything. You know, I used to teach Sunday school. And no matter what question, you always have those kids that are half asleep, especially if you teach first service. You know, they're just looking at you like, her mouth is moving, you know? But I'm in, you know, Hawaii. They're just, or Disneyland, you know? They're just not there. And so whatever question you ask, they just go, Jesus. So you try to, you try to ask questions that that's the answer. So you can go, good, Susie, you know, good, Dorothy. Like, like there's a kid named Dorothy these days. But, you know, good, Abigail. But the, but the thing is, is, is Jesus is the answer. He's the answer for everything he really is. He's the answer for the origin. I love it when Jesus stands before them and he says, you know what? You don't know where you came from or where you're going, but I do. I know where I've come. John chapter seven, John chapter eight, and I know where I'm going. He knows the origin of everything. He knows the DNA of everything. He needed not that any man should tell him for he already knew what was in the heart of every man. Jesus, Jesus, God has appointed a day when all men will be judged by his son, Jesus Christ. This is why every man needs salvation. Paul knew that every man would stand before Jesus Christ. Every man. That's why men need to be saved. That every man's going to stand before and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ and proclaim that he is Lord to the glory of God. That's why men need to be saved because every man will go into eternal condemnation or eternal glory. Every man, every person, every living being will stand before a living God because Jesus became a man and lived a righteous life, fulfilled the requirement of the law. Jesus, every man will stand before Jesus. So Paul's delivery of the gospel shows his lack of intimidation. He is forthright, he is bold, yet he is reverent and respectful. He did not approach them like an intimidated man, but like a man who already had the victory, a man who was confident in what he knew to be true like Jesus moved with compassion when he saw the multitude like sheep without a shepherd. Paul was provoked when he saw all the idols because he realized that these Athenians, these Athenians did not know what they believed, that they were sincere, that they were deeply reverent, that they were hungry to know God. So Paul treated them with respect he doesn't put down the other gods or the false God. He simply tells them about the superiority of his God. He simply presents the real God to them. F.B. Meyer, who is a friend of D.L. Moody, again, remember these are the people with the initials. In the 1800s, using the initials was really cool. I could be C.L. Broderson. But we spend too much time praying things out and not enough time praying things in. We spend too much time putting down and not enough time exalting the Lord. You know, I, I was asked to speak at this conference um, that was kind of like a false, like let's, let's know what all the false things are that are in the church conference. And I went to speak and I, I looked at these women And uh, I said to them, you know what? I find it very tragic that you know more about the false religions than you do about the true religions. You know more about the false cults and the bad stuff going on than what your living God is doing today. You know more about their books than you do about the Bible. You know? We need to know our God. We need to exalt our God. As my dad said, we, we spend too much effort and energy trying to drive out the darkness rather than simply turning on the light. We just need to bring Jesus. We just need to bring the gospel. He speaks to them on their level, quoting their own poets Epimendes and Erastus. Paul is relevant and relates to this culture. He does not insult, dismiss their poets. He commends all that will bring them closer to God. He looks at them and he says, you know what? I commend you for being deeply reverent. I, I commend you that you realize that we all came from one source. I commend you that you understand that it is by God that we live and breathe and have our being. I commend you. I see that you already know these things. And he took from that and he exalts the living God. Years ago I was sitting on an airplane and you know I sat next to a young man and I just started asking him questions about what he believed and he was, you know, just kind of saying, you know, and then he finally said, You know, so what about you? I didn't point my finger and say, Well, you need Jesus and you need this and you need that. I said, You know what? I serve Jesus Christ, and I have known him since I was a child, and I just don't want to ever, ever, ever do life without Jesus. And you know, I just told him about my experience with Jesus. I just told him what I knew. I didn't have to point my finger at him and say, you're dead, you're lost in your trespasses and sins. I told him without Jesus, I'd be lost. He told me that he thought that pot was the greatest thing And I said, oh, if I didn't know Jesus, I'd probably do pot too. But I know Jesus, and so I just, I'm on a a constant comfort and high with Jesus. And I get munchies even with Jesus. (laughs) I got it all with Jesus. I just turned on the light. It's time to be, it's time to stop being so easily intimidated. And this is how we're going to do it. We're gonna grow in our understanding of the power of the gospel. Let's just give the gospel and watch it work. Just throw the gospel seed out and watch what it will do. We need to live in the call of God on our lives. What has he called us to do? Where is the grace? Where is the power? What do you know is the call of God in your life? We need to know the scriptures, which means we need to be in the word, read. I'm talking to the choir here. You're the ones who do your joyful life lesson. Yes, Read, rehearse, talk about, study, listen, understand. You're here and you're talking with other women about the gospel. You're studying the gospel. You're listening to the Bible study. You are doing this. You are learning the scriptures. We need to recognize the superiority of our God to all other gods, the superiority of his wisdom and his power we serve the only true and living God. We need to see the dark depravity and gaping need of all men to meet their creator, to meet Jesus Christ and be saved. Every man, woman, and child needs Jesus Christ. As we grasp these truths, as we understand this, we will be unintimidated. Years ago, when we were serving in England... I was told that um, Kelsey, my two youngest children, Kelsey and Brayden, Brayden was about five and Kelsey was seven, were kind of having an altercation outside the church. And I, I went outside the, the church was a school that we were renting and I went outside this school to the kind of the little um, parking lot area in front. And Brayden had grabbed a hold of this little boy and he said, and he was so desperate and he said, You need Jesus. Don't you understand that you need Jesus? The boy was nine years old. You need Jesus. He's the answer. He's everything you need. He'll take care of the bullies. He will, you know, help you in school. He will, and you know, Brain's just pouring out the, pro- you need him. You need him. And the boy's going, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope. I don't think I do. Your mom tells a good story, but I just don't believe. And Brain's like, you have to believe because that's how you'll see Jesus someday. And Kelsey was going, "Braden, it just takes time. It just takes time for some people. It just takes time. And he, and he turns, he's like, no, Kelsey, he needs Jesus now. And she said, "Braden, it just takes time. And Brayden goes, no, Kelsey. And she said, I said, it just takes time. <laughs> and um, talk about patient evangelism. I applaud them both. I came out and I said, now you both have a point here. <laughs> but you know, Braden could see the gaping need of this boy. And he was unintimidated by his sister's punches, by other believers. You know, finally, I think of that um, uh, Barabbas who was sitting on the side of the road and he heard that Jesus had come to town. And we're told that he began to cry out, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. And all the people said, be quiet, be quiet. And we're told what? He began to cry out all the louder. And Jesus stopped and said, come to me. And then the people turned and said, oh, he wants you. (laughs) Come, come. And it said he threw off his coat and he went running to Jesus. That's what we need to be, unintimidated. We need to cry out all the louder when they try to silence us. And we need to throw off our jacket and just run to Jesus. It's time to be unintimidated. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up. Lord, we're sick to death of our fears. God, we need, we know that the answer is we need to know our God better. We need to know the power of the gospel. We need to know the scriptures Lord, we need to know your superiority. We need to know you. And so, Lord, we're praying that, Lord, as we exalt and as we know you, Lord, our fears would dissipate, would run to the shadows and cower and hide and not show their face in the presence of you, our great God and Savior. Move in us. In Jesus' name, amen.